Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Good evening, everyone. This is Dr. McWilliams from The Gist of Freedom. And today we have with us award-winning television anchor Cheryl Wills. Are you with us, Miss Wills? Hello. Hello, hello, Miss Wills. Is that you? Yeah. Yes. How you, how you doing, Miss Wills? This is the host, Dr. Bob McWilliams. How are you? Yes, Dr. Williams. It's a pleasure oh. to talk to you. Same, and I apologize for some of the difficulties in getting you on, but how are you? Oh, I'm great, and it's no problem at all. I'm very excited to do this show. Thank you, thank you. And I just wanted to get right into it. If you could just tell the listeners uh, who you are and, and, and if you can just tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure, I'm Cheryl Wills. Um, I'm a television anchor in New York. I am the author of Die Free, A Heroic Family Tale. That book is about my great-great-great-grandfather who fought in the Civil War and an incredible story that most African Americans don't know about that era. We get a lot of stories about, you know, slavery from Gone with the Wind and so forth, but we really haven't heard a real-life story like the one I discovered two years ago that I put in my book. And as a result of my book, I have been invited... I spoke several times at the United Nations. Uh, I spoke at the National Archives where the original documents of my slave ancestry were stored. And I just returned a couple of weeks ago from Dakar, Senegal, where I had the incredible opportunity to tell an international audience about the contributions of Africans in the Civil War, and it's something that's not a sexy topic, but it's still a life-changing topic. Our lives changed after the Civil War, and we can't forget that, Dr. Williams. Right, 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 right. And if you could just tell us, what what inspired you to to write this story? I mean, I I imagine that there was a, a point in where you wanted to just do some retracing of your own ancestry, but if you could just tell us briefly what inspired you to write this book. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I was searching the website, and, you know, Dr. Williams, all African Americans, this is one thing we have in common. We want to know who came before us. I don't care how old you are. If you are 12, 24, or 104, you know that sacrifices were made and you want to know who was it that came over here on which slave ship what did they do while they were here who am I descended from in Africa these are questions I don't care where you are in the diaspora you want to know and I was among that number I wanted to know and a couple of years ago I went on a website and just started searching. You know, I put in my last name, Wills, 
I put in the town where my father was born, and I wasn't really expecting anything because there's one thing we all know also, Dr. Williams, is that it is difficult to trace our legacy because right. of the chaos of slavery and families torn apart and mama sold to the Jacksons and papa sold to the Davises and, yes. you know, brother and sister sold to the Williams plantation. So we we know that that's what makes it difficult to trace our families. But I came up all aces. Mm. It turns out Edmund Wills bought my great-great-great-grandfather, Sandy, when he was 10 years old, right before the, about uh, 15 years before the Civil War broke out. And while my grandpa was on that plantation, the Wills Plantation, he bonded with five boys and they all became like brothers. And then as they grew up together, they heard about the war and they all escaped together. And it was incredible to get all of their records from the National Archives. I mean, the fire in my belly. I I have no words for how I felt. I had never read anything so quickly in my life, (laughs) you know, because I was reading about what they went through. And what I loved the most, Dr. Williams, was reading about their fire. You know, the, the the image that's perpetuated about slaves is that they were stupid and they did whatever anybody told them and that they were scared, and I saw none of that. Mm. I'm pleased to tell you I saw none of that. I saw with my own great-great-grandfather that when he went to enlist and the officer looked at him and, and was filling out his sheet, And when he asked them, what do you do, boy, my great-great-great-grandpa didn't say he was a slave like everybody else did. He said he was a farmer. Mm. Now, you stop and think about that. Right. You understand? He was sending a message not only to that enlistment officer, but he sent it even to me 150 years later. Cheryl, Mm. I never believed what they said about me. They called me a slave. I did not see myself as a slave. And that resonated to me with me from the grave. You hear what I'm saying? And yes, then ma'am. there was his brother, Dick Parker. I called them brothers. They were like brothers. They all grew up together. And, okay. you know, in slavery, who is your brother? Every slave is your brother and your sister, mm, good point, you know, good point. because right. you're all you got. You know what I mean? Right. You don't know where your biological family is. So for his brother, Dick, when when they asked him, what's your name? He said, my name is Dick Parker. Well, what's interesting about that, Dr. Williams, is legally his name was Dick Wills. Why? Because in the eyes of the state of Tennessee, he was owned by Edmund Wills. But he said in documents that I have that when he filled out his pension forms and they asked him about it, he said, I remembered that my mother named me for my father, Dick Parker, and that's the name I have always recognized in spite of what they said my master told me my name would be. Now, this is 1863. Right, right. 
You see what I'm saying? This is 1863, and this defiance and this dignity and this sense of self and sense of purpose, this is what we have to teach our children today, that you don't come from a bunch of ignorant, weak people. You come from very strong people who had their eyes set on freedom even when they were in bondage. That's a great story. I think that's a story that needs to be told, uh, a story that our our youth need to hear and need to adhere to. Um, My next question is, when you uh, were in the midst of researching for this book, Mm -hmm. what, if any, lessons did you learn or did you get or learn about yourself? Was there anything in that made you learn something about yourself? Absolutely. The number one lesson I learned was that Cheryl... Don't you ever make an excuse in your life ever again for what you can't do. Don't you complain and don't you lower yourself for anybody or anything. Because if your ancestors survived all of that, if they can make the transition from slavery to freedom with their dignity intact, then you tell me what do you have to complain about in the 21st century with your central air conditioning and your automobiles and electric lights. They had none of that. They had none of that. They had no conveniences that we have now. But they had something more, and that was determination and fire and dignity. And even though their culture, their African culture had been gutted from them. They still used their spiritual intuition to continue the tradition of the ancestors who they couldn't even speak their names anymore. But when they opened their mouths to sing, Africa came right out of their mouths. When they took to their feet to dance, they were dancing like the tribal leaders that they had been snatched away from more than centuries ago. Mm-hmm. So I learned about my culture and my strength and about how to respect people of all races and persuasions. You know, it humbles you when you mm-hmm. learn about that. And that's great. I think, I think the point that you were bringing up um, before as far as the, you know the African memory that mm. we still have, that we still have, and, and yes. still in existence today. Yeah, uh, and it's just that a lot of our, especially this current generation, because we have you know not been taught, and certain things have been kept away, we're not aware of these African traditions that have gone beyond and transcend generations, mm-hmm. and and they still speak to us today. Absolutely. Um, my next question is, this undertaking that you went, was this a personal undertaking? Is this something that other members in your family went with you, uh, undertook with you? And in, your, in the process of your research, uh, did it change your thoughts of any, any previous misconceptions or any previous uh, perceptions that you might have had about enslavement or about depictions mm. of enslavement, things of that sort? Yeah, it changed it completely. But for, I'll answer your first question. Uh, I went it alone. I started it alone, and I ended it alone. As a journalist, you know, I love writing. I love research. I love learning about different cultures, especially my own. So I went it alone. Your second question is my favorite. Uh, 
because did it change my my perception of what I thought I knew? And the answer is it changed everything that I thought (laughs) I knew. In fact, I didn't know Jack until I actually read not a filtered um, opinion of an author, but I'm looking at raw documents, okay? These documents don't lie. These documents that I read from the National Archives are not the opinions of an individual. It's fact, okay? And one of the things that I learned was that after slavery ended, in many cases, not all, but in many cases, Blacks and whites were just moving on with their lives. They really did try to say, you know what, it's over. Let's try to make the best of it and be as civil as we can. And how do I know that? Because my great-great-great-grandma, Emma, who went on to marry Sandy, the Civil War soldier, guess where they got married, Dr. Williams? Uh, Let me know. (laughs) In her former master's house. Oh, okay. Interesting, right? For 1869, right? Mm -hmm. Now, you would think that slavery ended less than five years ago. How how are these two former slaves getting married in their former master's house? Well, it turns out they had remained friends. Mm Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? They 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 supported each other. They did. You know. Now this is not to be confused with those who ran like hell from their evil masters. Okay. I mean, there were plenty of those stories too. I don't want to give a misconception, but that is that does not represent the whole. Is my point. Right, right. Yes, some slave masters were cruel and evil, there's no doubt. And there's an argument to be made that they were all cruel and evil because none of them had any business enslaving anybody in the United States of America. But the fact remains, they got married in their former master's house. She was given away as if she was a daughter to them. And they helped her all of her life, even after he died, and helped her petition the federal government when they denied her her pension. And these are the people who once owned her. So, you know, it it once again proves how successful Jim Crow was in undermining the Reconstruction era. Uh-huh. So what I'm hearing is that in in your research and, and, and in your search through primary sources mm-hmm. that you found that there was definitely vari- variations in how uh, slavery was conducted in a sense and that, it, you know, it wasn't just one totality or one ex- monolithic experience. That's right. But there was different experiences and, and you wanted to kind of illuminate and highlight, uh, the you know, this particular experience that your your family went through. Yes, and just to shed light, not to appease by any means, and certainly not to excuse the wicked, wicked crime of slavery that destroyed Africans and and severed our attempted to sever our umbilical cord from where we came from. But it is to say that some whites. And some blacks really tried to go along and get along after slavery ended. And when the Ku Klux Klan started their wave of terror, regrettably, their wave of terror 
permeated the entire society and was successful in demonizing Africans and and rolling back the few little um, advances that they were able to make, you know. And that's why, you know, when you talk about the first black this or first black that, you always have to say in modern times, Jackie Robinson was not the first black baseball player. You know, um, the, the sister from Chicago was not the first black senator. You know, these this all happened right after slavery, we entered the major leagues. We entered the the Congress, you know, mm-hmm. and then you know the wave of terror rolled it all back. So right. it was just a joy with looking at these primary sources to get a different view of what is people typically think is the norm. So I'm interested to know, and did it help, or how did it? I'm assuming it did change, but how, did it? Uh, how did it change your perception of a movie? Let's say like Roots or something hmm. of that sort. Well, hmm. I just want to know in your research and did it help you know? And I remember I was thinking back to your previous responses when you were saying you you weren't getting this information about enslavement through you know a filtered you know it wasn't being filtered from a particular author but it was just with right. your own your research from all your own primary sources. So mm-hmm. I guess how did it did it change your perception of like a movie like Roots or things something like that? I think Roots is well taken for what it is. I think that. Um, it's been fairly proven by scholars that Alex Haley um, took some licenses when he was writing that book, but I love it for what it is, and I think it drove the point home, and I think it educated an entire generation who really knew nothing in 1977 when Roots came out. So, you know, I'm not going to say, oh, it's totally different from Roots. There's a lot of similarities between Roots and, say, my book, Die Free. Uh, I think Die Free is a little more specific in that I'm dealing with a primary source, and that is military records and pension records where they actually speak and you can right. hear their defiance and you can hear you know their passions and you know and that's amazing that roots is um the creation of Alex Haley's dialogue and what he thought they might have said he certainly didn't have any primary sources that he worked from um you know he created a narrative and it was fairly accurate, you know, for what it was. But when you have the direct primary source, there's no comparison. Okay. There's no Good. comparison. So how, 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 how do you, uh, what do you think about the, you know, the uh, research that Dr. Henry Louis Gates has been conducting where he's taken, mm-hmm. uh, you know, African-Americans and, mm-hmm. and that sometimes those, not even African-Americans, but have mm-hmm. them trace back their roots and, mm-hmm. and kind of get the origins of their family history and their family tree. And I feel like this particular experience for you was something similar to that. So what is your take on Dr. Henry Louis Gates' research and what he's doing? I have a great appreciation for Dr. Gates, and I was inspired to do it myself. I had a DNA test. And it determined that I was a descendant of the Bamaliki people of Cameroon. The, and it was very gratifying and, and yeah, exhilarating to learn that. However, one simple look at the landscape of African Americans over the last 300 years, or Africans in America, even when we were not citizens, 
mm-hmm. and it's clear that we all mixed with everybody. So right. it's a bit disingenuous to send someone, and even though I appreciate it for what it is, to send someone to Cameroon or Ghana and say, this is your hair. Okay, that's one one hundredth of who you are. But you also had a family member, I'm sure, from Nigeria. You also had a family member from Cameroon, from all over the West Coast. I mean, when I was in Senegal um, two weeks ago, they kept saying to me, you're one of our sisters. We could tell. We could tell. You look like us. We could see it in your eyes and in the shape of your mouth. And it was very touching to hear them say that. But I couldn't help but reflect, Dr. Williams, that I'm a hodgepodge of Africa. I'm a little of everybody, and so right. anyone who can trace their roots, you will find that. You know, when they right. took us off the slave ships, they didn't say, okay, everyone from Ghana, go to South Carolina. Everyone from, right. <laughs> you know, they just threw us all together, and good luck to you. And we right. were shipped here and there and crossing states, so... We, you know, we're we're all of. That's why it's quite fitting that we are called African Americans. Good. So my question now is, what what advice would you have to a let's say a novice researcher who wanted to do mm-hmm. something similar, mm-hmm. uh, similar to what you've done and what you've written in this book? So what advice would you give it for someone who wanted to undertake something uh, like this, as far as tracing their history and their 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 ancestral roots? Sure. The first thing anyone should do is find the the branch of their family tree that's been stable the longest. I chose my paternal line, Wills, because they lived in Haywood County, Tennessee, for, as far as I could tell, at least three generations. I didn't realize it extended all the way back to the Civil War and beyond until I started digging. But I knew my father was born in Haywood County, Tennessee, and my grandfather was born there, and my great-grandfather was born there, and that was all I knew. And then when I started digging, I found it went back even further. So um, that's what you want to do. Like if you got grandma and she talks about all the family that's been in South Carolina forever and forever, that's where you should dig. And you should go online, and the first thing you want to do is look at the census records and find out who served in the military. So census records and military records are really going to tell you how to proceed. And if you lock up and you had a relative that served in the military, you will have hit pay dirt. Because the military, the United States government kept very detailed records, including all the pension papers of every military since the Civil War. And in some cases, the Revolutionary War, but really, they started the really excellent documentation and preserving records during the Civil War. And if you can stretch it back to that, you are going to find out a lot of information because they sent me thousands. Of documents, I even the postmarks. <laughs> I was shocked at what I received by the thousands, and I had to pay the National Archives by page. But I'll tell you, Doctor Williams, it was the best investment I ever made. Mm. Well, we thank you for that excellent information. I think that's tremendous, great information for those who might be inspired to do the same thing. I think you're helping a lot of people out. Were there yeah. any particular? Difficulties or any uh, maybe any uh, uh, 
uh, how can I say, maybe anything that maybe you wish you didn't come across, anything you were reluctant about, any anything you found that maybe you wish you didn't, didn't you know, maybe you wish you You know, you that's a good out. question. That's a very good question. I'll tell you what I wish. I wish I had known who Sandy was before Edmund Wills bought him. That breaks my heart because when you see that transaction, you see that, it's just Edmund Wills bought Sandy Wills when he Sandy he wasn't even Wills then he was by another owner and then he dropped that surname and became Wills and I have no idea who owned Sandy prior to Edmund Wills and that breaks my heart in such a big way because see that means a ten year old little black boy left his mother right. You understand me? That right, means right. he said goodbye to his siblings. See, this is what life was like for right. us for a very long time. And, you know, I have a young son, and I look at him, and he couldn't even imagine life without me. You know what right. I mean? And I, right. can, I look at my son sometimes, and I say, boy, several hundred years ago, we God knows. Well, I could wake up one morning, and you could be gone. Exactly. And how my exactly. son would have cried, and I see that in Sandy. So there is absolutely no way of knowing who right. owned Sandy and who was Sandy's mother. But that's why, you know, you got to tap into your African spiritual roots because the answers are still within us. There are no secrets spiritually. There are no secrets. And you speak to a, such a good point that just – how traumatic the slave experience was to the fact that, uh, you know, slave masters and oppressors, they really did view African people as property in the sense that they they had no, it was no emotion for for the most part to separate a young child from his mother. They stripped them of their humanity and and they didn't see it. Now, right. if it had been them and someone had taken their 10-year-old son, all hell would have broken loose. But right, they had right. no problem. Isn't right. that amazing what right. human beings can do to each other? Exactly. And I think it's just so hard for even for me to this day to just really get a sense of how truly traumatic yeah. the, the enslavement or the slave process and the institution of slavery was. It had to be very traumatic. Uh, uh, to undergo. Were there any yeah. family members of yours who, I mean, did they support you in your research? Any family members rejected you? I mean, how did your family uh, uh, deal with the fact that you were undergoing this research? Yeah, no rejection whatsoever. Okay. Everyone cheered me on. Um, they were very excited when I told them, I said, guess what? Our great-great-great-grandpa fought the Civil War. I mean, they, you could, they almost passed out. They were like, oh, my God. And when I said, guess how we got our last name? Edmund Wills gave it to us, and this is all his information. I mean, they just sit and look at the paper with wide eyes and their mouths open because, you know, you carry around a name all your life. You know it's not the name given to your ancestors in Africa, you know it's through an unholy and immoral transaction called slavery, and you can't help but say, holy crap. (laughs) (laughs) You mean it was this guy? And it's shocking. I I mean, do you know who owned your family and the Williams name? 
No, I don't know. Actually, I'm, uh, my last name is Nick Williams, and I haven't mm-hmm. known. But uh-huh. on my mother's side, she has started to uh, begin to trace her roots. So right. we are undergoing well, that currently. Nick Williams, that would be yes. Irish. Yes, indeed, <laughs> indeed. And, and, so I guess and you from, don't uh, sound Irish to me. No, so. ma'am. <laughs> this information that you found, did you, mm-hmm. how do you, how did you share it with your family? Uh, was it at family reunions? Is it with just particular individuals at specific times? Or was there a way that you just kind of introduced it to the family? Yeah, you know, I, I, I we all live in the same town here in New York. So okay. they're they're always at my house. And, you know, as when I really started to get solid, you know, confirmation of everything, you know, I saw it, and then I didn't believe it, and then I had to hire a genealogist to make sure I wasn't, you know, just dreaming this up. And when the genealogist actually confirmed it with Washington, I went, holy crap. So mm-hmm. I, I remember I wrote everything down on a piece of paper in a family tree, and I connected it, and I made like 50 copies and gave it to the whole family at, at some dinner, probably a holiday. And they okay. just had a million questions for me. Because I mean, it is something. I mean, if I if I was Mr. Doctor McWilliams, if I were to say, "Hey, Doctor McWilliams, boy, you're a great, great, great grandma Essie in South Carolina, and that's why you're Doctor," I mean, wouldn't that blow your mind? Yes, yes, it, it's 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 definitely an experience. Yeah, an experience. So how did how about uh, I know you mentioned your son earlier. How mm-hmm. how how does he or how did he take? some of the information that I'm sure you shared with them. In the yeah, story. you know, and I write about it in the book, actually, okay. his reaction. And I, I, you know, when I first told him, and he's probably the first I told after my husband, and after I told my son, he kind of looked at me like, okay, so, and, and, I'm, you know, it broke my heart a little bit because I understood the ramifications. I understood what what it meant, but he was I think ten at the time, and he he didn't get it, and you know I wanted him to jump and go wow mommy this is incredible and he was sort of like okay and. <laughs> and you know he's right. not to be faulted for that, but in a right. way, I felt like I was to be blamed because in the book I write extensively about it, and I say I feel like I gave him too much. This kid now couldn't even understand why it was, you know, a jackpot, and I don't mean in the material sense, but in a legacy sense. I he couldn't understand how we had literally found something that nine out of ten black people would love to find. He for him it was just another okay and and I felt like what did I do wrong? I didn't pass this down to him. I didn't talk to him enough about our history. It's my fault, you know, maybe if I hadn't done this and if I hadn't done that. But ultimately, you know, my son's now fourteen and ultimately I've reasoned that when he gets older he's going to understand it better. He's going to have a different take. But, you know, kids today, all they care about is video games and give me, give me, give me. Mom, can I have this? And so, you know, I was a kid once and I was like that too. But I guess when he gets older and really starts to look at the world outside of the comforts of his four walls, he's going to realize that mommy found something extraordinary. And I think also as they get older, like you stated, there's, there'll be more of an appreciation of, of mm-hmm. family and legacy and 
as they get older, they'll begin to, and I'm sure if you haven't done so already, you'll take them to different museums, and perhaps there'll be a better understanding or even a better acknowledgement of this horrific time in American history yeah. called, you know, enslavement and how, you know, that is particular to him and his uh, family and, you know, his people, African-Americans. Mm-hmm. Um, in your in your uh, research, did you find anything like uh, Bibles, photos, anything yeah, that, you I know, wish. you could hold on to? I wish. Uh, how I wish. One thing that was extraordinary, there were a lot of extraordinary stories that I found in in my book. And one of the things that I wish I had, and I believe with all of my heart that I'm going to get it one day. I don't know how, but I just believe it. Sandy, the Civil War soldier, after he died, his wife had a Bible. And she, you know, all, most slaves were illiterate. And when she married as a free woman, she was historic in that sense. She was among the first wave of Africans who were citizens and could legally married rather than that mockery of jumping over the broom, which was not recognized at all. And she had a Bible. And, you know, the old Bibles, they were like family records. They had pages for you to put the births and the marriages and everything in them inside the Bible. And she cherished her family legacy so much that every time she had a baby, she would have her former master's family write in her Bible, William Wills, born September 20th, 1869. Um, Alex Wills, born, you know, April 12th. 1871 and she did that for all nine of her children and when she filed for her pension they basically told her we're not giving you in word a, a pension for we don't care that your husband fought in the civil war this is basically for white widows and she hired a lawyer and won why because she was able to prove with her bible that all of her children were by sandy and Great. it is oh, my wow. prayer to get that Bible. You know, you don't throw away a Bible. I don't care how old it is. Nobody takes a Bible and throws it in the garbage. No holy book. So that Bible is somewhere, and it's so meaningful to me after doing all this research and writing so passionately about what she went through and fighting with the federal government. So it's my dream to get my hands on Emma Wills' Bible, and I believe I'm going to get it, Dr. McWilliams. <laughs> I'm believing for you. I'm believing for you. I have one question before, because we have a few uh, call. We have a couple callers on the line, and before oh. we get to them, I just wanted to ask uh, a question. Uh, I was trying to think. It sounds like maybe there was a history of indentured servitude, which might have been slightly different than chattel slavery. Uh, yeah. Did you come across that at all? No. Or are you um, pretty confident that they were? Chattel yeah, they were here. all chattel slaves, no doubt about it, at least in okay. my family. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. indentured servants were more during the, revol- the colonial times, mm-hmm. right, you right. know. Yeah, but, you know, as the years progressed, they did away with all that buying your freedom. I mean, there were right. some people who were still able to buy their freedom all through mm-hmm. slavery. There were some mm-hmm. Africans who were free all the time. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. we were a brilliant people, make no mistake right. about it. And we wheeled and dealed and the Negotiated, and we did what we had to do. So, right. it, it, you know, it was different, but for the most part, especially in the South, chattel slavery was the law of the land, and that's what my family was embroiled in. 
Okay, great, great. Thank you. Uh, we're going to go to a caller now. Caller 3311. Caller 3311, are you on the line? Hello? Hello, caller. Yes. How you doing? You're on the air. Please ask your question. Oh, yeah, my question was, um, I read the book, and um, it's, my name is Fife G. Fife. Oh, um, hey. I just wanted to know, um, if you trip to Africa, is that going to be on part two of the book or, like, uh, uh, a mini series or something? Yeah, I mean, I definitely plan, Sife, to um, write another book, and certainly my trip to Senegal is going to be a major part of it because I had the pleasure and the honor to go to Gory Island, which is where they would keep the imprisoned and kidnapped Africans before they shipped them out to North America, South America, and the West Indies. And walking in there, I mean, I wanted to faint when I first got there. And the only reason I didn't was because I was so busy taking pictures. And I knew I was taking pictures for, you know, my family back home. So I had to stay focused. But it is shocking to step foot in that prison where millions walk through. And my profile picture on Facebook, and I don't think I'm ever going to change it, is me standing in the door of no return. And I'm standing there, and this is the last place that our ancestors this was their last view of their home and Uh once they went through that door and onto the ship never again would they see their home so it meant so much for me to stand in that doorway and to just you could feel the pain in that place even hundreds of years later it was still palpable and the little prisons they had even for the babies i mean they called us savages I beg to differ. <laughs> the savages were the ones ripping apart husbands and wives and children's and communities and kidnapping them as if they had committed some crime for being alive and yes. shipping them off in unsanitary and deplorable conditions to a strange place. They were the savages. That's right. So that sure, my yeah. my next book is t- certainly going to revolve around my experience going to Africa, and I plan to go again. Thank, thank you, you for uh, that question. Yeah, thank you, Carla. We appreciate your question. Thank you very much. And we're about to uh, wrap up shortly, but before we wrap up, um, Miss Wills, if you could just, again, let us know, if you could restate the, the title of the book and let our listeners know where they could purchase the book. Absolutely. Die Free... A Heroic Family Tale can be purchased on my website, diefreethebook.com. It's available in all major bookstores, Barnes & Noble, Amazon.com, many independent booksellers like Human Bookstore in Harlem. And it's selling very well. It's in the United Nations Bookstore, the National Archives. And I'm so proud of how people are really hearing about it and supporting it. And we we've done off-Broadway productions of it and wow. we're we're also in talks with producers trying to get it to the big screen and it's very exciting what's happening. I the ancestors have my back 100% on this. I say. And 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 if you can, what are the demographics of your readers? Do you know that or how is it being received even by uh your white colleagues? Yeah, I I love that question because let me tell you, I just did a a, a Civil War roundtable, 95% white. I didn't really, I was the keynote speaker. 
I didn't really think a lot of people were going to show up because most of the time when I speak, the audiences are African-American. I went in there, every seat was filled, more than 100 people. I couldn't believe it. And they bought every book I had. And also they asked me, how come more African-Americans don't talk about the Civil War? And I said, whoa, that was a heavy question, you know. They were basically asking me, you seem to get that this war changed everything for your people. How come your other fellow African Americans aren't talking about this era the way you are? And I just said, well... I don't know, (laughs) but I'm talking about it, and I know we appreciate it, but, you know, there's a lot to talk about. A lot of people have different agendas, but I really do believe, Dr. McWilliams, that if we focus on teach our young people about this critical era in American history, they'll cut out a lot of this foolishness, shooting each other up over sneakers and drugs, and they'll have a different kind of appreciation for who they are and why they are free. Right. I I, I think your book, uh, one of the things that it's doing is is, is inspiring a discussion as far as bringing, you know, reteaching or teaching really the travesties of enslavement, uh, and that personal tragedy that we've gone through uh, and how we relate to that. Uh, I know mm-hmm. a lot of times, you know, when we're learning about the Civil War, when we learn mm-hmm. about we only really learn that, you know, it was like Abraham Lincoln that, right. that really sided. And we're not, we're not taught that, you know, there was really other people and, and you know, exactly. abolitionists and, and people of African descent who were fighting far before Lincoln was in an effort to uh, abolish slavery. Exactly. Um, and and I got news for you. There were always blacks who were fighting against the grain. We didn't just lay down and take it. There were insurrections from the moment slavery started until the end of it. And I got news for you. A lot of white people were putting their lives on the line trying to end slavery. And they helped people like Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass, you know, people like John Brown. I mean, he led an insurrection that shocked this country so bad, they didn't know what to do after John Brown's raid. You know, I mean, they said, oh, my God, now the white men are killing us over slavery. They didn't know what to do. So, you know, we we have to reteach this era, and we have to remind people it's the 150th anniversary of the Civil War. That means 150 years ago we became free. That cannot be overstated. That's an anniversary that cannot go by just like, oh. Right, right. Good point, good point. Now, if, if before we go, can you tell us anywhere where we could probably get in touch with you, any signings coming up, oh, any way yeah. we could get in touch with you personally for speaking engagement, things of that sort? Absolutely. I'm a busy little beaver, you know. I, I, I speak all over. Um, where am I going? Black History Month. Let me put it to you like this. 
dieforeitherbook.com, and there's an appearances website uh, of all the places I'm going to be. Yesterday, I did a wonderful Martin Luther King Jr. celebration luncheon um, where there were 200 people there, and I talked about my book. And after that, and I want to bring it current, I met up with the Tuskegee Airmen. You know the movie Red Tails is coming out. And we want to support them in that movie because, you know, Hollywood said there's no audience. Right, we, right. You know, nice movie and sentimental, and we respect the Tuskegee Airmen, but, hey, we're not investing it because we'll lose our money. And George right. Lucas, the director, went in his pocket $58 yep. million dollars and took a chance. So I re- I'm doing a big piece on it this weekend on New York One News. And um, Cuba Gooding stopped by. I interviewed him as well as the original Tuskegee Airmen. And it's important that we let Hollywood know that we want to hear real stories right. like the Tuskegee Airmen and so forth. So. Right. Well, I thank you very much. I thank you for coming on this evening and sharing your story. I uh, thank you for sharing the story, and hopefully we'll begin a conversation on probably uh, on re-implementing teaching uh, our people about the travesties of slavery, but also the variations in the different stories and of of uh, diligence, the different triumphs that we as a people uh, accomplish even in the midst of enslavement. Yes. So again, I I just want to thank you again for your time. I appreciate you coming on and letting our listeners know a little more about yourself, and and definitely telling us about your book, Die Free, and they can go to diefree.com. Diefreethebook.com. Diefreethebook.com. Yeah. And it can be also purchased at any major bookstore. We thank you again for your time, Ms. Cheryl Wills. And for all our listeners, we thank you for listening. Please join us in a couple weeks. Until then, God bless. With Lucky Land Plus, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. <laughs> 